Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey pilots, it's Nick here from Part-Time Pilot. Did you guys know that you didn't have to spend $1,200 or $1,000 or even $600 to get your very own pair of headsets? Now, when I first heard of Core Headsets, Core Aviation Headsets, I heard from a friend. I had to check them out myself because he said he only got them for $100. At the time, I was borrowing from a pair of David Clarks from my flight school, and I was borrowing these broken down. They always had issues, and they were always sweaty from the previous student. So I was very curious. I ended up getting gifted a pair of Bose headsets, a $1,200 pair of Bose headsets, but I still wanted to check out a pair of Core Aviation headsets. And I was super amazed at the amount it compared to my expensive Bose headsets and it made me think you know I was gifted those Bose headsets but I would never have especially as a student pilot bought something so expensive at the beginning of my training career so these are the perfect flight headsets for a student pilot or a private pilot and you can get the P1 version at coreheadset.com you get a P1 version for $109.99 right now they're having a sale and or you can get their KA1 version which I just bought another pair because I want to see what kind of updates they've made even though my previous KA1s are still working today after three years and I've never had one single comm failure with them anyways the KA1s are also on sale at $194.99 you can get your brand new quality headsets and it even comes with a five-year warranty and then the best part about all of this is I already told you it's on sale and they have free shipping but you can get an additional 10% off if you use the coupon code part-time pilot that's part-time pilot with no spaces Use the coupon code to get 10% off free shipping plus the sale that they're already having for your very own quality pair of headsets that I myself highly, highly recommend for a beginner headset student pilot. So go check that out at coreheadset.com. That's core with a K, K-O-R-E-H-E-A-D-S-E-T. That's coreheadset.com and use the coupon code part-time pilot. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hey pilots, this is Nick again. Did you guys know that Part-Time Pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon? It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, 
Asa or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those, but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject, like the cliff notes, like those other books do, and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test, but it also goes much, much further, and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads, including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points. It's that plus much, much more. These visual aids all in 404 pages in the ultimate private pilot test prep book. And it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. So go check it out. Hello and welcome to the Audio Ground School podcast. My name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a bonus episode and we are going to take a break from studying all this stuff, all this ground school. It's a lot to learn. It's a lot to take in and it's very important in life and whatever you're doing to sometimes just just relax and enjoy yourselves and take a load off both your body and your brain. Relaxation and and rest is very important to performing well and having a a long good life. So I thought, well, we haven't done that yet in the Audio Ground School podcast. We've done over 30 episodes and we haven't really taken a break and just said, you know what, let's maybe talk about something fun. So I still wanted to release an episode for you guys and I wanted to do something fun. Now before, on a couple episodes before, I, I mentioned, hey, maybe I'll do something like cool aviation fact or something like that. Well, I had the idea to talk about something that sort of near and dear to my heart. It is my favorite aircraft of all time, and that is the SR-71 Blackbird. So I got some cool facts that I'm going to read you guys, some cool stories, and we're just going to talk about how freaking cool that aircraft was and if you don't know about the sr-71 definitely gonna geek out on this and learn some really cool things and if you do know about it you hear something that you didn't know or maybe you know something that that i don't know and you could you could share that with us at team at parttimepilot.com i love talking about this stuff as you guys know i'm an aerospace engineer as my background going to school and just these sort of things like the space shuttle rockets sr-71s ramjets that sort of stuff was just super duper cool to me and why I got into this field in the first place. So I'm going to be a little selfish and sort of geek out here. And if you're interested, yeah, then great. We're both and then we'll have some fun. 
So the SR-71 Blackbird was an aircraft made by the company Lockheed Martin and their sort of Skunk Works division, which is kind of like their special programs division. Anyways, President Eisenhower back in the early 60s during the heat of the Cold War with the Russians. So you had all the, you had World War II where nuclear weapons were created and all that stuff. And then you had the nation, you know, USSR and the United States building up nuclear capabilities and then all the tensions that came from that leading to the Cold War, right? I'm, I'm no expert on the Cold War, but that's the gist of it as far as I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned. And so there was a bunch of, they called it a Cold War because it was just a bunch of spying going on and each country knew what the other one was up to and could position themselves in a position of power if anything were to ever happen. And so there was the U-2 spy plane that the U.S. used for a long time and one of them got shot down by the USSR. President Eisenhower didn't like that so he said hey Lockheed build us an aircraft that cannot get shot down by missiles surface-to-air missiles so Lockheed took this difficult but pretty cool engineering problem and said okay well how can we not get shot down by missiles well we can be faster than them we can fly higher than them or we can hide from them basically be stealthy so they designed an aircraft to be all of those three things and the result was the SR-71 Blackbird now it's called Blackbird because it's black and the reason it was black is I think a little bit to do with the stealth but also to do with keeping the temperatures in there because the altitudes which they would fly at was so high they would be so cold up there that they had to have keep in the heat somewhere the color black absorbs heat so they had to keep the pilots alive and not freeze to death because it was black I think they called it the Blackbird so anyways there's some cool facts about it it has a bunch of records still today now these records are for air breathing aircraft so when we say air breathing what that means is that the engine needs air from the atmosphere to work. So it breathes in air from the atmosphere that it's flying through and then mixes that with a fuel source and then lights that mixture on fire and creates combustion. So even your your Cessna, your Cherokee Warriors, that's what they're doing. They're just doing it in pistons, but they're drawing air in, they're mixing that air and compressing it with fuel and then lighting it on fire with your spark plugs. And that's what they're doing. And then these Boeing jets, right, with these big GE or Rolls-Royce engines are sucking these with the big fans are sucking all this air in, they're compressing it, they're mixing that with fuel, and then they're lighting it on fire. So they're, again, breathing air. So the SR-71 uses these sort of jet engines, and there's some crazy if you're into engines and propulsion stuff, there these engines were pretty remarkable. See, there were Pratt and Whitney J58 engines, and they had 32,000 pounds of thrust each. No other operational aircraft required such a diverse range of performance, which led Pratt and Whitney to deliver that J58 turbojet with two operational modes depending on speed and altitude. Once airborne and refueled, the SR-71 pilots performed a dipsy doodle maneuver that they called it, uh, which would attain Mach 1 in a climb before diving to achieve a more fuel-efficient acceleration and subsequent climb to operating altitude. Highly optimized for the SR-71's high cruising speed, the J58s would be at the most fuel-efficient at these speeds with the afterburners producing all of the engine's thrust at these levels, the compressor stages being entirely bypassed. So 32,000 pounds of thrust on these engines, and they're pretty cool looking. They're huge. They're ginormous, and there's two of them on either side of the aircraft. So some other cool facts is, well, you might say, well, did it work? Did they use it? And yes, they did use it. They used it for reconnaissance in the Cold War, and it was never, ever shot down by a missile. 
I don't know the number, but it was shot at, but they, they never, they were, it was just too fast and, and flew too high. How high could it fly? It could fly up to 85,000 feet. That's nearly the edge of space. So up there, the air as an air breathing engine, it probably couldn't go any further. It probably reached its absolute limit for air breathing engines. You know, once you get past that, you're basically in space and you can't breathe air anymore because there is no air. So you need a rocket. That's why NASA uses rockets and not air breathing engines because you run out of air as you go higher and higher and get into space. So it was so high that basically the, the air crew, right, they had to wear basically astronaut suits. They looked like astronauts when they got in there and they had to breathe the oxygen and everything because it was just so, so dang high. And so how fast was it? Well, it holds the air breathing aircraft record still for speeds, which was, I think it was Mach 3.3 for sustained flight, Mach 3.5 during uh, an operational mission. Uh, and I, that's over 2000, I think the record was like over 2100 miles per hour, which is just insane. How fast is that? Well, that's New York to London in under two hours or LA to Washington, D.C. in about an hour. So super fast and it can fly super high. So it was never actually shot down by any enemy missiles. It did, however, crash quite a few times. They lost 12 of, I think, the 32 that they built due to crashes. And that's because it was difficult to fly for these pilots especially at lower speeds right lower speeds lower altitudes it's hard to design something in an engineering sense that can both fly really well and be maneuverable and safe at low speeds and low altitudes but also you know fly 2,000 miles per hour at 80,000 feet so that was a problem and so it made it difficult to fly we'll kind of talk about some of those other cool facts that made it difficult because it had to be basically engineered to fly at such high altitudes and speeds that it went on the ground and things like that on earth like it didn't really work how they wanted to one example of that is that it was made out of it had to be made out of titanium so it couldn't be made out of aluminum because the heat that the skin of the aircraft would get to would just melt the aluminum. So they made their own titanium alloy to create the skin of the aircraft. Titanium's more rare and expensive. And the reason aircraft heat up so much the faster they go is from skin friction, right? So the air molecules hit it at such high speeds that it heats up that metal. So the faster you go, the hotter it's going to get. If you've ever seen like a video of a spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere you see all that heat happening when it when it's running into air that's what's happening right there so it gets super duper hot so it had to be made out of titanium but also they had to allow for the titanium to expand so when metal heats up it expands and it, it grows in size right so when they put these like skin plates and things together these frames together they kind of had to leave some room for when it expanded so when it got up to these high altitudes and high speeds and it got really hot and it expanded they had to make sure it all fit and it wouldn't just like pop off or, or break apart so on the ground when it wasn't super hot there was actually gap and holes in the airframe and stuff like that and it would actually like leak fuel on the ground and so they actually wouldn't put too much fuel on the ground for takeoff and they would have it take off and they actually to get it to take off another thing is they had to use a special fuel because of such high heats right they didn't want this fuel to just combust from the heat of the skin of the aircraft or anything else 
else. They didn't want it to just spontaneously combust because of that. They wanted to control the combustion, right? Just like we do in our aircraft. And so they had to use a special fuel that was not volatile and wouldn't just combust unwantedly or unexpectedly. And because of that, they had to like inject, I can't remember what it was called, but they had to inject some chemical on the ground for like to get it going on the ground, even to be able to take off. And then they would actually carry some of that that chemical with them in case they lost engines and needed to restart in the air. So that was one crazy thing. The other crazy thing, they, they would take off with low amounts of fuel and then they would do this like maneuver thing and they would go meet up with a, a refueling aircraft and they would refuel in air. They would fill up full and then they'd be able to fly like crazy, crazy distances like I think some missions lasted over 12,000 nautical miles. So if you uh, have gotten into your cross-country planning and you're looking at, you know, seeing the requirements for cross-country planning, needing to go to an airport that's 70 nautical miles away and then an airport that's another 48 nautical miles away, well, think about doing a cross-country flight that's 12,000 nautical miles total. That's just insane. So really, really cool facts. And I think, you know, let me know if you have any other cool facts. I know I've heard some, I'm probably missing some, but just a an amazing aircraft and super cool to think about. If you're wondering what it looks like, you know, please go Google it. SR-71 Blackbird, it's really cool. And there's even some videos out there of it flying. I think NASA was the last one to fly it. They flew it in like the late 90s as to collect some data in high altitude. But also, if you've seen the new Top Gun, this isn't really a spoiler because it's at the beginning of the movie, but if you haven't seen it, you should <laughs> by now. Come on now. At uh, the beginning of the movie, Tom Cruise is, he's, you know, a test pilot and he's trying to break, you know, the mock speed record. And the aircraft that he, he is in is very similar in look to an SR-71, I think. It's, it's kind of got that stealth design and stuff like that. And the only difference is that that is a ramjet. And I'm not an expert on a ramjet, but that aircraft in Top Gun is both a air breathing jet, like we're talking about, like the SR-71, that can switch to a ramjet. And so the reason you switch to a ramjet is ramjets are the sort of the new technology in hypersonic flight. So hypersonic is when you get like going speeds of Mach 4, 5, 6, 7. I think it's, I can't remember the definition of hypersonic. It might be above like 5 or something, Mach 5 or something. I can't remember. But when you go that fast, it's different dynamics. And so ramjet is a technology to be able to fly that fast. So you might heard about hypersonic missiles being developed by countries and they use ramjet technology, but it only works in supersonic flight. That's because the, the aerodynamics change when you go from subsonic below Mach 1 to supersonic. You start to get these shock waves and it's just crazy to me to think about, but basically they a ramjet is just like this geometrical like tunnel on this aircraft that uses these shock waves to its advantage to create these like areas of pressure and stuff. So these shockwaves bounce off this geometric tunnel in the aircraft and then they mix fuel in there and use that so they don't even have to have like a fan because when you get so fast these fan blades get so hot or they can't spin that fast there's there's limitations to physical limitations to like the fan blade of normal engines when you get to something that is that that freaking fast so ramjet is such a elegant cool thing where it doesn't even need fan blades or rotors or anything like that it just uses the aerodynamics of these these shock waves inside like a geometric tunnel so but it only works 
when you have shock waves, which happens above the speed of sound or above Mach 1. So Tom Cruise's aircraft, right, he starts off, he gets above Mach 1 to create those shock waves, and then he switches to ramjet and then allows him to go from there. Similar kind of thing that the SR-71 did with its engines. It kind of had different operational modes, kind of like that. It didn't switch to a whole different engine, but similar type of thing uh, that engineers do. They think about the different modes of flight, and sometimes you have to implement sort of two different types of engines if you want to get to a certain speed and altitude. And that's so that's kind of some back history on that Top Gun aircraft in the, in the new Maverick movie and how it's connected to the SR-71 Blackbird. Okay, so let's get to my favorite SR-71 Blackbird story that is going to come. I'm taking this from the SR-71Blackbird.com. So I'll put the link in the show notes for you guys. The author is a Blackbird historian named Major Brian Schull, retired from the United States Air Force. And I'm just going to read straight from this because I think it's a fantastic story. Again, I'll put that link in the show notes. So let's hear this story. There were a lot of things we couldn't do in an SR-71, but we were the fastest guys on the block and loved reminding our fellow aviators of this fact. People often asked us, because of this fact, if it was fun to fly the jet. Fun would not be the first word I would use to describe flying this plane, intense maybe, even cerebral, but there was one day in our sled experience when we would have to say that it was pure fun to be the fastest guys out there, at least for a moment. It occurred when Walt and I were flying our final training sortie. We needed 100 hours in the jet to complete our training and attain mission-ready status. Somewhere over Colorado, we had passed the century mark. We had made the turn in Arizona, and the jet was performing flawlessly. My gauges were wired in the front seat, and we were starting to feel pretty good about ourselves, not only because we would soon be flying real missions, but because we had gained a great deal of confidence in the plane in the past 10 months. Ripping across the barren deserts 80,000 feet below us, I could already see the coast of California from the Arizona border. I was finally, after many humbling months of simulators and study, ahead of the jet. I was beginning to feel a bit sorry for Walter in the back seat. There he was, with no really good view of the incredible sights before us, tasked with monitoring four different radios. This was good practice for him, for when we begin flying real missions, when a priority transmission from headquarters could be vital, it had been difficult too, for me to relinquish control of the radios as during my entire flying career I had controlled my own transmissions. But it was part of the division of duties in this plane and I had adjusted to it. I still insisted on taking on the radio while we were on the ground, however. While Walt was so good at many things, but he couldn't match my expertise at sounding smooth on the radios, a skill that had been honed sharply with years in fighter squadrons where the slightest radio miscue was grounds for beheading. He understood that and allowed me that luxury. So even at this level, you can see the importance of being good on the radio. And you can even see, you know, in the story that even the guy whose job it was on the radios, he didn't always sound as smooth as the other guy. So just even when you get to this level, there are struggles with that. So when you struggle with the radio, just remember this story that everyone's been there before and you just got to keep getting better. Just to get a sense of what Walt had to contend with, I pulled the radio toggle switches and monitored the frequencies along with him. The predominant radio chatter was from Los Angeles Center, far below us, controlling daily traffic in their sector. 
While they had us on their scope, albeit briefly, we were in uncontrolled airspace and normally would not talk to them unless we needed to descend into their airspace. We listened as the shaky voice of a lone Cessna pilot asked Center for a readout of his ground speed. Center replied, November Charlie 175, I'm showing you a 90 knots on the ground. Now, the thing to understand about center controllers was that whether they were talking to a rookie pilot in a Cessna or to Air Force One, they always spoke in the exact same calm, deep, professional tone that made one feel important. I referred to it as the Houston Center voice. I have always felt that after years of seeing documentaries on this country's space program and listening to the calm and distinct voice of the Houston controllers, that all other controllers since then wanted to sound just like that, and that they basically did. And it didn't matter what sector of the country we would be flying in, it always seemed like the same guy was talking. Over the years, that tone of voice had become somewhat of a comforting sound to pilots everywhere. Conversely, over the years, pilots always wanted to ensure that when transmitting, they sounded like Chuck Yeager, or at least like John Wayne. Better to die than sound bad on the radios. Just moments after the Cessna's inquiry, a twin beach piped up on the frequency in a rather superior tone, asking for his grounds. I have you at 125 knots of grounds. Boy, I thought, the Beechcraft really must think he is dazzling his Cessna brethren. Then out of the blue, a Navy F-18 pilot out of Nas Lamor came up on frequency. You knew right away it was a Navy jock because he sounded very cool on the radios. Center, Dusty 52 ground speed check. Before Center could reply, I'm thinking to myself, hey, Dusty 52 has a ground speed indicator in that million dollar cockpit. So why is he asking Center for a readout? Then I got it. Old Dusty here is making sure that every bug smasher from Mount Whitney to the Mojave knows what true speed is. Is. He's the fastest dude in the valley today. He just wants everyone to know how much fun he is having in his new Hornet. And the reply, always with that same calm voice with more distinct alliteration than emotion, Dusty52, center, we have you at 620 on the ground. And I thought to myself, is this a ripe situation or what? As my hand instinctively reached for the mic button, I had to remind myself that Walt was in control of the radios. Still, I thought it must be done. In mere seconds, we'll be out of the sector and the opportunity will be lost. That hornet must die and die now. I thought about all of our sim training and how important it was that we developed well as a crew and knew that to jump in on the radios now would destroy the integrity of all that we had worked toward becoming. I was torn. Somewhere 13 miles above Arizona, there was a pilot screaming inside his space helmet. Then I heard it, the click of the mic button from the back seat. That was the very moment that I knew Walter and I had become a crew. Very professionally and with no emotion, Walter spoke, Los Angeles Center, Aspen 20, can you give us a ground speed check? There was no hesitation and the reply came as if an everyday request. Aspen 20, I show you at 1,842 knots asked the, across the ground. I think it was the 42 knots that I liked the best. So accurate and proud was Center to deliver that information without hesitation, and you just knew he was smiling. But the precise point at which I knew that Walt and I were going to be really good friends for a long time was when he keyed the mic once again to say in his most fighter pilot-like voice, Ah, Center, much thanks. We're showing closer to 1900 on the money. 
For a moment, Walter was a god, and we finally heard a little crack in the armor of the Houston Center voice when L.A. came back with, Roger that, Aspen. Your equipment is probably more accurate than ours. You boys have a good one. It all had lasted for just moments, but in that short, memorable sprint across the Southwest, the Navy had been flamed. All mortal airplanes on Freak were forced to bow before the King of Speed. And more importantly, Walter and I had crossed the threshold of being a crew, a fine day's work. We never heard another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. For just one day, it truly was fun being the fastest guys out there. Okay, so... I don't know if you guys could hear in my voice me just getting like the literal chills, but if that's not the most badass story of pilots out there, then I don't know what is. So I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I have if you have heard it before, or if you haven't heard it before, then I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So yeah, I had to share that. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that story and you enjoyed learning a little bit about the SR-71 and kind of the, the cool facts about it. We may do this again if, if I get good feedback about it, but I just wanted to come here with something different for this bonus episode, give you guys a break. And if you're studying along following these lessons, you know, give yourself a break, you know, maybe go out with your significant other, take the kids out, or maybe just take a day by yourself to relax a little bit, refresh your, your brain, refresh your body, uh, because it is a lot that you're learning and we uh, burnout is a real thing. And we really want to avoid that and stay good. Don't get too stressed. That's not something to do when you're flying. So take a day, take a break, and just enjoy some, maybe some aviation stories. Maybe watch Top Gun Maverick if you haven't seen it yet. All right, guys. Well, thanks for allowing me to share some geek out on you guys and share some stuff like that. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And we'll get back to the lessons next week. So until next week, I'll talk to you then. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors, and $22,000, and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but 
once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor they're going to stop you and they're gonna say okay we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons and now you're gonna be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you but instead 50 60 70 dollars an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know and, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic, again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed 
either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.